Thanks for listening to the Pioneer Valley Church podcast. Our hope is that what you hear encourages your faith in the way of Jesus and inspires you to participate in what God is up to in the world. God bless. All right, Mark chapter 12. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. We're in the final act of Mark's gospel as Jesus, who's considered a prophet to Jerusalem by many in his day and by some the hoped-for Messiah. He's entered into Jerusalem. He goes at once into the heart of the city. Rondi brought us there just a few weeks ago, the place of God's dwelling, the temple. And he begins to cleanse it of the money changers and the salesmen. And and the place where God has come to dwell has been corrupted. And Jesus goes in to deal with the corruption, the sinful greed and the competition rather than the worship and the prayer that it was meant to be. And over several more interactions, Jesus is questioned and he's challenged by the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. They're all trying to trap him because he's come in and he started to hang around and threaten and critique the power center of their society, the temple. And now we see him sitting and paying very careful attention to those who come and worship there. And he points out to his disciples, the poor, not the wealthy, but this poor widow, the ones who are worshiping righteously, he says, who are doing it right, who have done more than all the others. And we, our minds go back to the scriptures in Matthew, blessed are the poor, right, in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus is pointing out that this sacrifice that seems small and insignificant in the world's eyes is actually the kind of sacrifice that God values. More than all the others, Just as his own sacrifice, the insignificant small-town rabbi and rebel to the system, crucified outside the city gates among the common criminals, was actually the greatest of all sacrifices, the greatest sacrifice ever made to humanity. It would go missed by most. And he's turning the tables upside down, but he's also turning the definitions of kingdom and power and worship and God's presence upside down as well. This widow's example isn't about giving contribution to the church. It's about the way of the kingdom. And in Mark 13, as they almost always do, and we're going to go through all of Mark 13 or most of it today, as they almost always seem to prove in the gospel of Mark, his disciples miss the point. And they attempt to even redirect Jesus's words and his teaching towards the grandeur of the temple. If you look here in Mark 13, verse 1, it says, As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. 
In other words, the disciples respond to Jesus' pointing out of the widow with, yeah, yeah, great about the widow, but, but look at the size of this building, Jesus. Like, imagine what it must have cost to build something like this. And, man, the power that went into something like that. Thank God for Herod and all the people who supported the building of such a great thing. And Jesus says one of the most radical things he set up until this point in the gospel. Essentially, this magnificent building, the work of the wealthy and the powerful in your society, the representation of the wealth and the prosperity of Jerusalem, the corrupted place of worship where the presence of God was meant to dwell, the place of national power is going to be destroyed. The idea of the temple goes back to the garden. The garden was where God dwelt with humanity. It was his original intent, and he walked among them and spent time with them. But as Genesis describes, humanity went their own way in deciding to be God for themselves, to define good and evil for ourselves. And we're still up to that in many ways, right? The next 10 books of the Bible describe the journey of Israel to make it to the promised land, to get established as a nation, to build a temple for God to dwell and to again be with his people. And Solomon, David's son, finally constructs this temple. And the temple was meant to be the location of the light that was to shine, like we said and sang in that song, to shine to all nations, to be a beacon of God's love for all of humanity. But again, just as in the garden, Israel decides, as humanity does, as we do, to define good and evil for themselves, to find security in something other than God's presence and in righteous worship. And they turn to idolatry. They have a lot of trouble with idolatry and the worship of other gods. And God hands them over to the Babylonians. And in 587 BC, the, the, the Babylonians come in and take siege of Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. And now, about 50 years later, after that, the second temple begins to be constructed. But it's never the same. In fact, in Ezra 3, it says those who had seen the first temple, even as the second temple is being constructed, they're crying. They're weeping because they're going, it's just not the same. Oh, if you could have seen the glory of what it was like, this is not the same. And since then, up until Jesus' time, it's in a constant source of critique by the prophets because of its corruption. It remained actually in construction for hundreds and hundreds of years, right up until Herod the Great. He's, he's expanding the temple, even in Jesus' time. The temple of Jesus' day had become a wonder of the world that no longer represented God's delight and desire to be with his humanity, but now is a source of power and control over people's lives. It was no longer a place of forgiveness and worship, but a place of hierarchies and corruption. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem to cleanse it. And he critiques the leaders of it, Mark 11. And this is actually what gets him killed. If you read Mark 11 again, it says they, when he starts to cleanse it, they go, we've got to kill this guy. And he goes on, actually, later on in this gospel in Mark 14, he claims to be the new temple. That his life, his death, his resurrection was now going to be the embodiment of God's presence and his rule that had now entered the world. He was going to be the temple. In fact, after his ascension, the earliest Christians believed that his body, now represented in the church on earth, now they are the temple. Now we are to represent the temple. A group of people who dwell with God 
together. A group of unlikely people who dwell with God together are now meant to be the temple, the light to all nations. Consider Peter's words, which, by the way, Mark's gospel, where did he get his content from? Peter. This is essentially, Mark's gospel is essentially Peter's sermon notes. Peter says this, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Could you understand why someone like Paul, who's a Pharisee, a defender of the law, would become one of the greatest persecutors of the church because the church believed they were the temple? Could you understand why he would be thinking, like, I'm going to persecute this group and I'm actually defending God because of what the temple meant? And now this group of people are calling themselves the temple. And can you understand why Peter, having learned the lesson of the widow some decades later, finally could tell a group of persecuted, exiled, insignificant in the world's eyes, Christians in his letters, that they're a holy priesthood. His view had changed. He had taken on this kingdom view. The good news had transformed what God's presence with people looked like. Rachel and I got to spend some time in uh, New York City a couple weeks ago. We were there for our anniversary and And we got this uh, room on like the 39th floor right over Times Square. And we're looking out. And if you look out, it's just, it's captivating to see all the buildings and all the work that has gone into building this magnificent city. And I I was just admiring, I was at least, I was just admiring it. I was staring out the window like, wow, look at this. This is crazy. All that has gone into this. And Rachel pointed out, as she often does to help me, that since the fall of humanity, we have always tried to show our greatness. We've always tried to prove our own wisdom and our own power and our own provision through the greatness of a city. It's a theme throughout the gospel, throughout the Bible. Babylon to New York City are all a reflection of what we can build, what we can do, what wisdom and greatness and power and prosperity can look like. And it's not that God doesn't give us the creativity and ability to build and create, because he does. It's just that when it becomes more about reflecting our power and glory and extending our wealth and prosperity rather than the garden-like state that he called us to, and when we're creating something that looks like that rather than helping to, to nourish and foster and extend his garden, then it's just another Tower of Babel. I can get tempted with the greatness of the city. Like with the wealth and the power and the wonder and what I even I'm walking around like who lives up there? Like what's up there? Like what's on that penthouse? Like you see the penthouse with these gardens and these trees, and you're like, it's over Central Park, and you're like, who makes that much money and lives up there? Like I just want to go up there and I don't know, sit and see what it's like. You know, like I can get tempted with that. I don't want to be the widow. Like I, I don't want to be small and insignificant. In my flesh, I don't want the cross. But the way of the kingdom is the cross. It's always been the cross. It always will be. It always has looked small and insignificant standing next to Babylon. But it always will be what lasts and where God dwells. Okay, so I'm going to read some more of this passage, but I just want to say something about it first. What I'm about to read has many times 
easily become teaching, doctrinal, debate kind of text because so much of it has been misinterpreted um, and, and reworked over just really the last couple hundred years, about 150 years, in the wild west of the American West, right? The American Christianity landscape has, we've gotten a little weird at times with some of our interpretations. And I grew up in a Christian stream of faith that was very much consumed with end times prophecy and the rapture and those kind of things, and none of that is what Jesus is about to talk about. Um, he is going to be discussing something that has nothing to do with the end of times. Um, and I'm not going to go too far into that, but I'll say a few things along the way because I don't want to get sidetracked from what Mark is trying to do with this teaching. So we're going to try to stick with it. Sound good? good. All right. Uh, you're going to have to open your Bible for this one. Verse 3. We're still around the temple. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen, these stones that are all going to get knocked off of each other, right? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever's given to you at the time. For it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone who will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. Okay, so who is Jesus? He's a prophet to Jerusalem first. And he's called to call Jerusalem back to the right worship of God. And who's he talking to? His disciples who are Jewish and who he's called to be the new representation of the tribes of, the Israel, of, of, of Israel and to represent all the nations of what this new kingdom will look like. And eventually he says to go preach to all these nations. And what's he saying will happen to them, those disciples? They will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And then eventually the persecution will happen and they'll be flogged and trials will happen and they'll go to court and they'll have to give testimony and nations will rebel. Jewish brotherhood will turn against itself, not Christian brotherhood, because they wouldn't have even understood that, but brother will, will turn against brother. He says, don't be alarmed, though. These are just the pangs of childbirth. These are just the, the labor that's going to produce something. The real trouble is still what's coming. And he's warning them against not being deceived that he's come back. So right off the bat, we know this is not about him returning at the final trumpet. You know what I'm talking about? To instead be patient, to not give in to fear. Don't panic, he says. Don't give in. Stand firm to the end and you will be saved. Not saving your soul in heaven someday. He's talking about being saved from the persecution and the wars and what we're about to see is coming. A world-ending event for a Jewish person of that day. Stand firm till the end. 
not till the end of the cosmos, but until everything gets fulfilled that he says is about to happen. Does that make sense? Okay, verse 14. You guys doing okay? Here we go. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, that just sounds really bad, doesn't it? Standing where it does not belong. Let the reader understand then let those who, that's just a quick aside from John. He's like, just because it can get confusing, understand what I'm about to say. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the, go, on the housetop go down and enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequal from the beginning. When God created the world until now, and never will be equal again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Okay, so if you want to do a deeper dive on the abomination that causes desolation, uh, you can go back and do a study of the book of Daniel. And Daniel 7 and chapter 11 and chapter 12. John Oakes, who many of you guys have read his works, he's got a great book on this. It's called Daniel, Prophet to the Nations. And he just breaks it down. It's super helpful. But interestingly enough, Mark knows this can get confusing. And so he's like, hey, reader, pay attention. The point, again, is, not, is that Jesus is talking to his disciples about something that will happen in their lifetime. He goes on to say, this generation isn't going to pass away before these things happen. So this is not about Judgment Day. It's about a terrible persecution that will come and eventually destroy the power structures of their society. They will be tempted to go back and get their coats, which, again, you won't be able to do when Jesus returns. To go back and get some stuff out of the house. But Jesus says in that moment, it's not a time for panic or a time for uh, patience and to wait. It's a time to run, he says. Get out of town. And don't give in to the claims of false messiahs that seem to appear. These kings and leaders and people who claim to be God's anointed one or God's man for the generation to rise up and to lead the day for God's kingdom. Only Jesus is that guy. There is only one messiah. Lots of false prophets, though. And they will attempt to deceive people to stay and to hold on to the power structure so that they themselves can gain some power. He says, be on your guard. I've told you, Peter and James and John and Andrew, I've told you ahead of time, so don't mess up. In AD 66, the Roman Jewish war began. So this is almost 35 years or so later. And in the year 69, four Roman emperors succeeded each other in bloody murder one after another. One year, four Roman emperors just killing each other and taking the throne. All this persecution breaks out. Nero starts to persecute the Christians. Nero, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. Uh, and in, in AD 70, as Vespasian was going to Rome to get his crown, he's the fourth guy in line, his son Titus comes and sacks Jerusalem and burns the temple down and slaughters thousands of Jews. And the historian Josephus tells us that, that, that Jews actually raise up and start to try to fight, but they end up fighting each other. 
that he says more Jews killed Jews than the Romans killed Jews in this attack. There's starvation. They're eating their own children. They're fighting for scraps of food, factions fighting against one another. It was horrible, dreadful, painful time. And the Christians get persecuted even more in all this time because they leave. And he says that in this time, Josephus says that there's all these different Messiah figures that start to crop up to try to gain following in the disturbance. And so Mark is written somewhere, our best guess, most conservative, like latest is probably in the early 60s, like 60 AD. Jesus predicted this 40 years before it happened. So you got, you got, four, you got a 40-year ramp, on-ramp here for this thing that's coming. I've told you ahead of time. In verse 30, we, you don't have to go there, but he says, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until they, all these things have happened. So this is the final prophet. Jesus is the final prophet to Israel, prophesying against the destruction of the temple once and for all, the end of God's dwelling and all that had failed and the, the end, a world-ending event for the Jews. And the church is the new temple and the establishment of a mission to go and to be the light to all nations. The Jewish people actually never recovered the temple. And instead, they turned their focus to synagogues and to Torah observance, and they moved away from the sacrificial system. So what can we learn from Jesus' proclamation of the temple destruction and his pointing to the widow for a correct view of worship? What can we learn from this warning to the disciples in light of their admiration for the constructions of humanity? Three things. Beware of false temples. God isn't dwelling in the structures of the high and mighty. The powers and the rulers of the day, Paul says. God isn't in the systems of hierarchical organizational worship that we tend to set up. All those systems and structures will pass away. They will fail. They will fall, as they always have. Just do a surface study of Christian history whether they be a government or an economic power or a religious institution, God is with his people who love one another the way he has taught them, who anchor their identity and allegiance in the one true Messiah, Jesus. The good news is that Jesus has come and his spirit remains and he is represented in the body of Christ right now. So just look around for a moment. And recognize this is the representation of the temple. This is the repre representation of Jesus. Some of you are like, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a great honor. It's a high calling. And it's a tremendous mission. Second, beware of false messiahs. Those who want your allegiance to follow them. They may even promote Judeo-Christian views. They appear as sheep, members of the flock, but inwardly they're filled with greed and vanity and the desire for praise. They promise the way forward for people to lead them towards the promises of God, but they're actually just manipulating them for their own ends, to fill some broken part of their own humanity through, their, through admiration of a crowd and the ability to influence people in the public square. Jesus and the apostles all warn against these kinds of people. Those who would call themselves God's man or God's anointed one, the leader of God's people, perhaps even the leader of God's movement, should be recognized 
for what they are. There is only one leader of God's people. There is only one anointed one, Jesus. There is only one Messiah. Anything and anyone else is a false hope set in the frailty of human charisma and persuasion. We must not look to leaders when we should be looking for Jesus. And in the kingdom of God, good leaders will be the first followers of Jesus. They'll be the first ones to lay down their lives for others. Are you with me right there? Not controlling or power hungry, they will look more like the widow than Herod. The good news is that Jesus is the final, once and for all, only leader of his church. We have to learn to follow him and to live as he has taught us to live in his kingdom, even if it means persecution, standing trial, or being marginalized. We follow the risen king. And then last, seek the kingdom in the unimportant. I think this is a message that Jesus is trying to get across to us throughout the Gospel of Mark, that Mark is trying to teach us. Mark's audience is a who? Roman audience, remember? So the admiration for great and powerful is all in their DNA. And Mark is trying to help them look for the kingdom in the unimportant, Mm -hmm. in the margins, in the small. The faith of the widow is what's going to stand firm. She saw the money changers. She saw the corruption. She saw the Romans. She was going to worship God with all she had anyways, to love him with all she had. She had humility and devotion in a world succumbed to vanity and self-seeking. She was keeping God at the center of her life, even if no one noticed. But Jesus did, and Jesus does. The disciples, just like us, would be tempted to find an easier way that didn't require suffering or being persecuted, that looked a little bit more like the center, what everybody else is doing. They would be tempted to join in some national war to protect the temple, to make their battles against flesh and blood, and Jesus warns them ahead of time. They would be tempted with the soothing voice of other leaders who would promise to tell them the truth and lead them out of the confusion of war. Jesus is telling them, be patient, trusting, be kingdom-focused, not giving into the fear of being on the outside of the culture, but instead keep His promises. Rest in his power and his provision and keep that at the center of your life, at the devotion of your life, not anchoring your trust in economics or national security or religious leaders, but be people who live in the reality that Jesus is superior to all leaders, to all structures, to all powers and his temple, his kingdom, the type of people that he comes to call and to form or what will last. That kind of life may look small. And in our world of praise and multi-million dollar teenage influencers, we don't like the idea of being anonymous and small and insignificant in the world's eyes. But it may look small. Probably will. May look even persecuted. It may look weak in the world's eyes, but it's where Jesus says his good news is revealed where you can go to to find a lens, a hermeneutic, a a way to interpret the way forward is in the small, the insignificant. Jesus says you'll see it in the grass of the fields and the birds of the air. 
not in the large stones of the building, in the widow's offering or in his death on a cross, in the Christian standing trial alone, even the ways that we devote ourselves to acts of worship on a weekly basis or the, worship, the acts of worship that you, you do throughout your week that go unnoticed, that nobody else sees, maybe the ones that you've been mocked for or forgotten because they're unimportant in comparison to other things. He says, those, that's where the kingdom rests. That's where the kingdom lies. That's where the kingdom is on display. That's where you go for good news. He says, it's a few that will find it, though. Few that will look to that small act of the widow and see the kingdom. It's not on the stage. It's in the nursing home after church serving communion to someone. It's, it's not necessarily on the worship team. It might look more like being in the kids' class, serving the children, where nobody notices. Maybe. Right? We're getting to the close, uh, close to the end of Mark's gospel. He's going to bring us to the cross next, and we're going to study that next week. We're just two more weeks out of this series. But he's going to bring us to the cross, the seemingly insignificant event in the eyes of the Romans and actually most of the Jews of this day, but was actually the crowning coronation of Jesus' throne and his kingdom and a model for us to learn from so that we too can live in the good news of the kingdom. Amen.